Hello and welcome to Medical Matters. This is episode four, uh, Making Nutrition Simple, the second part in a two-part series where we will discuss both the clinical and research perspectives in the field of nutrition. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Gil Carvalho. Dr. Carvalho wears many hats. He's both a physician and research scientist, an MD and PhD, uh, as well as a talented science communicator, speaker, and writer. Dr. Cavallo trained as a medical doctor at the University of Lisbon in his native Portugal and later obtained a PhD in biology from Caltech. Uh, he has had an Ill illustrious research career publishing groundbreaking medical research in the fields of nutrition science, genetics, molecular biology, behavior, aging, neuroscience, and much more. In parallel with his research career, Dr. Cavallo is also, uh, he also has a passion for science communication. In 2018, he launched a YouTube channel, Nutrition Made Simple, which aims to inform viewers of any education level about the fundamentals of nutrition while tackling the common myths that lead so many astray. Uh, we've been watching his channel for a while now, and we absolutely love his content. Uh, Dr. Kavala, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much to have, for having me, guys. That was a really nice introduction. I'm not sure that's me. Maybe that's somebody else, because <laughs> I was like, whoa. <laughs> now, thanks so much. I just want to start off with asking about, um, you know, we, we tend to hear a lot of a lot of information we tend to be bombarded more or less on social media by all manner of conflicting information about nutrition science and really what the the quote-unquote best diet is um, and you know it can be a very tricky thing because you know is there such a thing as the best diet we we look at you know certain diets around the world um, that you know give people really long life expectancies like take for example Japan uh, they eat white rice at almost every meal and white rice, you know, to some extent, um, it's high in the glycemic index. You know, it's it's a relatively simple carb. Um, the French also have a you know pretty decent life expectancy. They eat a lot of butter. So I just want to get your thoughts on like what you think, um, like if there is such a thing as an ideal diet and what it is. Yeah. I mean, it's basically taking the common themes of nutrition science, right? And that's that's really the most important thing when we look across all the different types of studies and all the different experimental approaches. The commonalities is what really boils to the surface. And that's basically uh, a pattern. It's not a diet in the sense that it's something with a specific name that's marketed online as the paleo diet or the Mediterranean diet. It's not, it's not really that. It's just a... Uh, a collection of principles and, uh, and general um, items. So it's a diet rich in unprocessed plants, fruits and vegetables, um, rich in fiber, moderate to low in ultra-processed foods, refined carbohydrates, and also easy on the, you know, the added salt and the saturated fat. That's essentially what the definition of the quote-unquote ideal diet is. Now, that fits most of the diets that people are fighting over online you know mediterranean flexitarian pescatarian vegetarian vegan even uh paleo and uh um you know even an omnivore diet can fit in that pattern just the, depending on the way it's designed and certainly all this all this bickering over the, the the nutrients the nutritionism should it be high fat or low fat or intermediate fat high carb low carb all of those fit under the umbrella of those main uh, principles. So you can have a, a low-fat diet that is rich in fruits and vegetables and moderate in added salt and, and uh, refined carbohydrates and um, and saturated fat. And you can have a, a high-fat diet that obeys all those principles. You can have a low-carb diet and a high-carb diet that obeys all those principles. So uh, there are there's an, a, a large umbrella 
under that umbrella, there's enormous wiggle room for variation and for personal preference to find the specific diet that works for you while still, you know, respecting these principles that will, that will in all likelihood ensure the best long-term results. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. There is, as you said, an abundance of information on the web that is easily accessible nowadays uh, between YouTube, such as your channel, or even just social media. Um, A quick Google search will give you a plethora of articles with uh, kind of varying data. But on the topic of vegan diets, as you mentioned, I did have a question that I've been thinking about in my own journey is going towards plant-based diet Hmm. is um, the Impossible Burger. They they claim that now. And a lot of restaurants also like to boat their um, Impossible Burgers and how great they are. I did want to ask, how exactly healthy are these Impossible Meats, like the Impossible Burger or even uh, Tofurky, Soy Rizzo? Mm. Um, Is there a balance between going more plant-based for those um, supposed nutrients and balancing that between the chemicals and just the modification that goes into making these synthetic foods? Right. Yeah, it's it's a common question. So we have some information on that and we can make educated guesses based on the nutritional composition. There's one study that I know of from Chris Gardner at Stanford that looked at a comparison between, um, I think it was the impossible. It was one of the, one of the two, the impossible or uh, what's the other one? Uh, the uh, Beyond Burger, I think is another. The Beyond, the Beyond, right. Yeah. It was might have been the Beyond. So it was one of those compared to like a meat burger, right? And he's looking at markers, uh, like serum markers, cholesterol and all these things and how to glucose uh, levels and how it changes after eating one or the other. So we can make educated guesses, but the, 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 the short answer is we don't really know what the long-term effects are of eating these foods consistently over a period of five or 10 years. And that's what really what we want to know with nutrition. Um, now, what, what I think most people in nutrition will tell you, and I agree, is these foods would be like occasional treats or they would be like uh, training wheels maybe for somebody trying to go from a lot of a lot of uh, red meat and a lot of fatty meats and trying to transition to a more to a more to a plant richer diet, vegan or not. I mean, you know, that's a more of a of a detail. People can want to go 100%. That's fine. You can design a vegan diet that's healthy. Uh, but if you don't want to go to 100%, you can still design a, a diet that is, uh, you know, health promoting and still contains some measure of animal foods. Uh, but I think that's what uh, the majority of people would say in, in nutrition is the these highly processed foods, whether they're plant-based or animal-based, and in this case, in this case, plant-based, they'd be probably better for the environment. But and ethically, I mean, it's hard to argue. But uh, in terms of health, they'd probably be you know occasional treats to scratch the itch or like a training training wheels. Not really the best pillars of a long-term day-to-day uh, you know on the reg diet. Yeah, and that totally uh, you know makes sense just because I feel like a lot of uh, the dynamic behind, you know, like plant-based meat research, it tends to be, I mean, poorly regulated. Uh, the FDA doesn't necessarily have full purview over exactly what's going into these, uh, you know, going into these products. And like you said, there just hasn't been enough longitudinal study to understand, um, you know, what, what ingredients to put in, what their actual health impacts uh, might be. Um, you know, that being said, like, say, we could eventually get to the point that, you know, say five, 10 years down the line when we do know, 
what what each of the health impacts are, and we can you know tweak the recipes um, to make them more helpful, like more healthful and more nutritionally complete. Um, do you do you see a future where we could potentially have lab grown everything, like like next to no meat, next to no need for actual meat anymore? We could just synthesize it all. Right. So lab grown meats. I think that. To me, that's more. There's something that's something with more long-term potential than the uh, than the fake meats, the 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 beyond and all that stuff. Uh, because, I mean, I, it's easier to imagine that after a phase of innovation, that you'd arrive at a product that is very similar to meat coming from a cow or from a you know a pig or whatever. I mean, essentially, it's the same cells. You'd harvest those cells are harvested from from an animal and then grown in in the cell culture medium. Uh, so it is, they are effectively animal cells uh, expanded and then, you know, grown to form a, a tissue in a certain shape. So I think there the, the barriers are going to be basically three. One, taste. Uh, they are going to have to figure out a, a way to get to make it taste like the original, which I don't think that's going to be a major barrier. I mean, if they made the Beyond made from beets and, and, got, and soy taste like meat to, to the point where some meat eaters can't tell them apart, I don't think it's going to be a huge hurdle to make Animal cells take like taste like animal cells, uh, but yeah, that's obviously going to be one big um, requirement for these things to go mainstream. The other is going to be cost. So I, I think that's also a matter of time. They're going to have to scale up the process so that you know, obviously, they're they got to they got to have they're going to have thousands or millions of these steaks growing at the same time, and lots of people buying, and the the, the cost is going to come down. But I think it's a matter of time until these things are cheaper than you know, raising a cow for two or three years and then going and shipping it around and then cutting it all up and refrigerating all, all this enormous costs and not even talking about all the, you know, the growing, the crops to feed the cow, like this, this stuff is just out of control. So, uh, yeah, I, it's, it's not hard to imagine that they'll be able to scale, scale the process so that this, these products will become cheaper. Uh, and then the third factor would be health which I think they will have to provide some level of reassurance to the public that it's at least not less healthy than, you know, like uh, meat from uh, a factory farm farmed cow, I guess it's, is like the lowest bar. Uh, but I think this one, this will be probably a second, a second third uh, or a distant third, because I don't know if there's just anything we, there's anything we had that's apparent from, from Western consumers and, and, you know, in the U S in particular is people are not too picky about the, about the health uh, impact of their foods. I mean, anybody who's eating, drinking Coca-Cola and, and eating Twinkies is probably not going to be too worried about the health effects of a of a steak that happened to be grown on a petri dish instead of uh, a cow living in, you know, in squalid conditions in a factory farm. So uh, I think uh, I would be very surprised if, la if lab-grown meats are not a massive, massive business that still in our lifetimes are going to be revolutionary and take over in a big, big, big way. And I think, you know, people who are a lot more attuned with this thing, you know, the, the, the type of investors these businesses are getting, these are not people who throw their money away. These are not dumb people, right? So, uh, and they're absolutely throwing money at these, at these companies. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's both for the environmental benefits that this is likely to have the ethical um, benefits. Those are, you know, pretty hard to deny and then even health the health you know it, it might be the, the trickiest one but like you like you were hinting at if they can tweak the composition right which might be easier to, to do in a petri dish setting 
than than with a cow, you can potentially change the composition, maybe create a steak that's lower saturated fat, or even throw in some, you know, some unsaturated fats in there. You know, you can, you have a lot more uh, power of manipulation of the composition in a lab setting. So I think even at that level, uh, the potential is certainly there. That is amazing. I've never even considered genetically modified meat like that, lowering uh, glycemic indexes or indices and sodium content and the potential that could have for just yeah the diet at the same now. right uh, of course there's always the the reverse you know the other side of the coin which is that these companies in general these large um you know multi-billion dollar companies um have their prime primary concerns and those tend to be profit and health of the consumer tends to be you know sort of a um, secondary or tertiary concern. It's almost like a, an externality. So we, we, I don't think we will ever be able to completely just trust the company that the product is healthy. There needs to be, you know, a very good level of supervision and oversight over, over all these things. But yeah, the potential is there. Let's say that I think we can agree the potential is there, whether to what extent that's actually, you know, brought into concrete, brought into fruition or 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 completely messed up and with wasted potential yeah that would also not be entirely surprising given you know what we've seen from um, from big food corporations in the past yeah speaking of trust or i suppose mistrust of these uh, large corporations where do you think the biggest source of pushback would be for progression of these um, like funding more research for these foods and um seeing just more of what this lab-based food would be like. Do you think that there would be a lot of pushback on this front? From the public, you mean? Like resistance to, to, the, to these foods? Mm -hmm. um, I think there will be an initial phase where people will be resistant, like any new product. Um, but I think, I think pretty quick, if the flavor and the cost are, those are, those are absolute uh, barriers. But if the the taste, I don't I don't think they'll even come to market before the taste is pretty pretty decent pretty decent and the cost is pretty you know pretty considered pretty reasonable too. If it's very very far above what uh, normal meat is, I don't think they'll even um, you know they'll even come to market at that point. Uh, but once those two are out of the out of the out of the way, I think that the health thing won't take too much um, too much reassuring. Of the public, I mean, you can look at look at the at these fake meats, right? The Beyond and the uh, the Impossible. Uh, these things are in market; they're reasonably popular. Yeah, they're not taking over the meat business anytime soon. So, uh, you know, obviously we're we're acknowledging that, uh, and I don't think necessarily that's the goal either. It's more maybe to provide to provide an option, but uh, but yeah, I don't I don't think uh, the main barrier is the health concern. I don't think yeah, I don't know I don't know I haven't seen, I haven't looked at polls but if you go around asking people if the beyond is as more or less healthy than than red meat I'd be surprised if there's a large consensus that it's more unhealthy but by, by the population in, in general so I don't think I I think people are um pretty pretty easy to to convince now what you will have is a lot of pushback from the competing industries right so the meat industry will have massive campaigns trying to convince the public that these things are horrible for them. And that's always effective to some extent. So you'll have this, this competition 
and this clash of, of marketing, essentially, uh, one side saying those products are horrible, just eat the, the, the cow like you, your grandparents did. And the other side saying, you know, that's horrible, it's destroying the planet, and you should only eat our product. So you're always going to have that. And I think it'll, it'll be, a, um, you know, a, a tug of war, but, but I, I don't think it'll take that long for people to, to accept, to be receptive to these products. Yeah, I mean, I I well, one hundred percent agree. I feel like you know, people in general, they want something that that tastes good and that's at a decent price. Uh, if we can find a way to, you know, subsidize it or at least promote the innovation to the extent that it becomes a comparable price, uh, you know, to, to red meat or, um, you know, lean meats like chicken, for example. Um, yeah, I see no reason that you know it would probably start out with the more. So like vegan crowds, people want to go plant based, and then you know they would tell their friends about how good it tastes. At a barbecue, they would show them, and then you start to get this mass switch over. Um, and uh, yeah, like you know, it just gets me to thinking. Theoretically speaking, um, you know, we were talking about synthesizing meat and making that you know completely lab grown. But uh, one thing that I've been thinking about is that you know there there are options out there for uh, I guess you can call like quote unquote nutritionally complete foods like soylent green. I think is a good example of that. Mm. Um, however, it's not necessarily palatable to the vast majority of the human population. Um, and, you know, sometimes those, those foods that, um, you know, do have a ton of nutrients in them, say, for example, kale, um, they're not complete nutrients, right? They're an uber. They're super, but not uber. Um, I guess that's maybe how I describe them. Um, do you think it's possible to, to engineer, like, the perfect, like the perfect food, see, like a version of Soylent Green or something similar, mm. but something that tastes good as well. Is that possible? Oh, I see. Like a tasty kale, kale or something, or like a tasty. Uh, <laughs> yes, something like that. Like a, yeah, yeah, I see, I see what you're, where you're going with this. So it's something that is not necessarily something that's healthier than, than the healthiest thing we already have, but something that is as healthy but tastier. Yes. <laughs> But like growing a synthetic kale, but it tastes like chocolate donuts or something like that. Or <laughs> tastes like I, kale that tastes like ice cream. Uh, possible, possible, maybe. Uh, I, you know, I, I from from the, the the technological advances based on the technological advances we've seen in the last uh, you know few decades. I wouldn't be surprised if something like that is possible. Um, how would that even work? So you'd have to. You'd have to actually make the kale produce molecules uh, that then bind to your taste receptors, your gustatory receptors, and and trigger the recognition of those things that like ice cream or, or sweetness or something like that, but then don't have the metabolic effect of eating sugar. Uh, so yeah, I I you know I I can imagine the possibility. My concern is always when you play these games. You never know. It's always a little bit of a black box, right? You never know what the long-term effect of the food is. So you can, you can do tests short-term. You can, for example, create kale that, you know, where some of the cells express some kind of sugar mimic on the surface of the, of the, of the, the membrane and, or the, the, you know, the cell wall in the case of the plant. And, um, and then you can show that, you know, maybe, uh, there's no insulin spike and no, you know, glycemia doesn't go up after ingestion. So you can argue that it's not like a sugar. It's better than sugar, but it tastes like sugar. 
there's always a bit of a question long term. What's the long term effect that this is going to have? Because it's it's you know you've created a concoction that you know it's it's the first time you're giving it to humans. So you you never know when we when we tinker with nature. You never know what the all the ramifications are. And I'm not against technology. I'm not against um, you know I'm not fundamentally against all these things. I'm not against GMOs in in in, in the absolute. I am in favor of caution and uh, yeah, and thinking of, thinking very carefully about the ramifications. And, and again, I don't think we can trust uh, blindly the corporations that make these things. Not because people are, you know, Machiavellian or anything. It's just the, it's just human nature. We have very tubular concerns and very uh, you know very parochial competences, and we tend to kind of. Um, you know, turn a blind eye to everything else. So when your primary interest is profit, everything else gets, you know, plays second fiddle. So yeah, the possibilities there, I think is really interesting, really exciting. Uh, these are the types of things, by the way, that there are food scientists at these companies that try to do these things. You know, the, the, the foods we buy at the supermarket, all these colored packages with these really cool names and the pictures, these are all creations in laboratories by people who are, their job is to create a food that tastes really, really, they call it craveability, right? It's just the right combination of salty and fatty and sweet and crunchy so that you can't stop eating and you've got to go back. Like this is all science. And there are people who do this for a living, people who are artists at doing this. So yeah, I mean, the, the, I the the idea is there. The, the science it's not science fiction. I think it's it's reality already. Um, but yeah, I think I think the caution will always be in the back of my mind. So on the mass production, say in our lifetime, we do experience this shift towards lab based foods and plant based foods. What do you think will be the primary reason? Then would it be economic gain or environmental? Or ethics? What would what would drive people first, in your opinion? Uh, from from the current, let's say, the current Western diet to a more plant based diet, or what's what would shift? Okay, plant based and just going more laboratory based. More laboratory, yeah. Um, I would say, off the top of my head, I think I think the environmental angle is really is really pushing this. Um, I mean, the ethics argument has always been there for decades, and mm -hmm. it has had some impact, but let's face it, not really a lot, you know, and, and part of it is because a lot of people aren't aware, really, of the, of the ethical um, consequences of how these foods are produced. It's not really something that's shown at too much. Um, lately, it's, it's, it's changed, I think, the last, I don't know, 10, 10, 15 years with Facebook and all these things, it's become more of a, a mainstream knowledge, but... Uh, but but the ethics is always going to hit a specific subset of the population are going to care about that. And a lot of other people are just going to be like, you know, whatever. That's this is how yeah. the followers will be advocates for their meat. Yeah, it, it, that'll be it's not that that can't that that can't have a tipping point. But I think it will take a long, long, long time because there's just too many factors. And, and the the um, the convenience factor it, it weighs a lot. Right. And the habit factor. Uh, weighs a lot for most people. Uh, but I think the environmental angle is really, from what I can tell, really uh, giving this a big push in the last five years, really. Not not much longer than that. The, the discussions over 
environmental impact and environmental footprint of foods is not does not go far that far back in the in the mainstream. Um, and so as we and, and the other thing is that it's also an issue of self-preservation, right? Ethics, we can pretend we don't see it and we don't really, well, we might suffer consequences in some ways, but not as clear as an environmental. Environmental is a selfish thing as well. Like we are destroying the planet and we're going to suffer those consequences. So there's a there's another level of urgency, let's put it that way, uh, where we got to solve this problem even to save our own butts. So that's, in as as the environmental you know, urgency increases more and more. And we're seeing that, that impetus clearly. And I don't think that's going to decelerate anytime soon. On the contrary, I think it's going to become more and more of an issue. I think we're, we're seeing the last couple of years, this is becoming now a political thing. We have, we're seeing in certain, we're seeing universities making this shift. So like official institutions making this shift. Parliaments, uh, you know, it's becoming like a, a, a real thing. Uh, where they institute this, these these shifts more to more to plant based and to more uh, environmentally, um, you know, l- l- less impactful foods. So uh, out of the three, I would say the environment. Uh, the health has also always been been there, and it's also like, eh, you know, a lot of people are on what uh, what Dolly Parton used to call the seafood diet. I have seafood and I eat it. Like, <laughs> they, they know they know it's not that good and they know the kale's better but eh, whatever you know it tastes good so that's always going to have a very limited um it's going always going to be a very limited deterrent the ethics also pretty limited but the environment i think yeah. is going to be the main lever we'll see maybe i'm wrong yeah, I mean, like, who who knows for one hundred percent with one hundred percent certainty? It's it's a really uh, tricky thing. So many variables come into play. Like, you know, we have to see how this research actually progresses over time, and uh, you know what roadblocks you know are erected along the way. Um, I mean, you know, if I could, you know, make make a wild prediction. This is obviously a relatively uneducated guess, but based off of you know some of the some of the stuff that I've seen, um, it seems like. You know, at some point in the century, we'll probably get there and meat will end up being a luxury item for rich people. Um, right. Some people are just mm-hmm. going to want the pasture raised like the quote unquote real thing. Um, yeah. So, you know, with that being said, like, you know, eventually we're likely going to convert over to a largely or at least a more so plant based diet, um, you know, over time, just just with, with technology. Um and also, like like you mentioned, environmental impact, ethical impact, of course. Um, and with that being said, you know, plant based diets they tend to they tend to have health benefits uh, over animal diets on almost any given day. Um, just a multitude of benefits. So, you know, say we did eat this extremely healthy diet. Um, this might sound like a crazy question, but what do you think would be our theoretical life expectancy? Uh, from from eating like the perfect diet, how long could mm. we live from that? So uh, as you were as you were talking about uh, the shifts, the gradual shifts in the West, this is still uh, before I get to that question. What we're seeing is, in, in fact, a shift in the West. In in uh, in rich countries, we are sh- seeing a shift to more plant rich diets, very gradually, gradual. But we're seeing kind of the opposite tide in the in the developing world. Where people traditionally had had more had more 
plant-rich food, plant-rich diets, and less westernized diets, less meat, and less processed foods, and they're coming in the opposite direction. So, yes, in the West, well, we're going to see meat consumption go down in the next couple of decades, but globally, it might actually go up. It's projected to actually go up totally because of all these, um, you know, the developing countries that are actually trying to, they're still catching up to what, to what the West was doing, uh, I don't know, 40, 50 years ago. And and the the risk the the, the, the these disease risks are 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 matched and are, are are climbing as well. So we got we got that problem. Um, we saw the same thing with tobacco. That same transition. The West started moving away from tobacco. The numbers got, started coming down. But then the, the developing world, uh, and and in fact the industry largely moved their marketing over and their focus over to the developing world where the consumption of tobacco was going up. And the same thing is going to happen with a lot of these products now. Uh, but uh, moving to more, I don't know, optimistic uh, questions. You were asking about longevity, optimal longevity. I don't think from, and I did, my, I did uh, my, in grad school, that was one of the primary interests we had in research. We studied longevity and all the factors that affect life, lifespan. And um, I, don't, I don't think we have the potential as is to go much longer than, you know, 100, 120 maybe we see in exceptional people, we see that type of longevity. And I don't, I don't think we have the genetics to go much longer. Now, if we make changes, there, there's all types of people, visionaries that want to make changes, make, make genetic changes to, to increase longevity. But as is, I think that's pretty much our around there, give or take ballpark. I think that's pretty much our potential. And most people are not, you know, when I say potential for the exceptionals among us that have really good genetics, right? But, but if everything goes well, if we don't, if we can avoid, um, you know, chronic disease, if we can avoid infections, if we can avoid accidents, all, all of these things, notwithstanding, that would be kind of the ceiling that we're looking at. But mostly, yeah, 80, 90 uh, to 100. What I, would, what I would highlight also is besides just how far each of us goes is how quality of life, right? Not just the length, but that's, that's really important. I mean, if, you're, if you make it to 90, but the last 30 years are misery, Eh, who, who really wants that? Uh, what we really want is is quality of life, also, right? So that's almost more important than than just sheer length. Uh, that to have to have a relatively healthy and functional old age. Uh, unfortunately, the same factors, dietary and otherwise lifestyle lifestyle factors, affect um, you know health and functionality as well as as longevity. So, um, yeah, I think that would be pretty much our our cap. I think a hundred and something. Something okay, yeah. I mean, that sounds it sounds fairly long, you know. Like, a uh, I don't think a lot of us want to live for a thousand years. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind, but, I, but I'm not, I wouldn't mind, but I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> I'm not, yeah. I also, yeah, I, I realize we also have to, I mean, we also have to leave the room for, for the next for the next generation. I think, I think it's unhealthy, probably mentally and so socially, it would probably be unhealthy if. If people lived a thousand years, we'd be we'd be too too comfortable. We'd start to you know I don't know. It, I don't think it would be healthy socially. I, I think it'd definitely definitely be a very different dynamic. Uh, but the the brevity of life also determines our decisions and our urgency and how, how we do things. So it would definitely change our entire perspective on on life as humans. Absolutely. Um... Yeah, I mean, you know, I think I think to to some extent we, you know, we we come into this world with 
with a guarantee of having a good life. And then there's, you know, there's a beginning, middle and an end to any story. So I think having, having some semblance of that, it, it can be important for a lot of people. Maybe not, maybe not everyone. Yeah. Uh, you don't want to live to a thousand? Oh no. <laughs> First of if I can make you know it why? and live an amazing life, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. But that, that's also because you're, you're 20, right? At 22, yeah. <laughs> give it another couple of decades. Yeah, give it another couple of decades. When you're closer to the end, you might change your mind. Okay. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> you might be like, all right, fine. Give me another couple hundred years. <laughs> okay, perfect. So um, just to be conscious of your time, we, uh, we want to ask just one more question. And uh, then we'll go and uh, wrap up the podcast. Um, so this is about the role of like the gut microbiome. There's obviously it's it's a new mm. frontier of, of of nutritional science and medical science, um, and you'll know, hear a lot about prebiotics, probiotics, uh, the benefits of those, and you know obviously I think you know this could uh, this conversation is so multifaceted, but I just want to touch on one point, which is that um, what do you think is the best way that we can optimize our, our gut microbiomes, like both in terms of uh, you know, um, ensuring that the, our gut bacteria are healthy and ensuring that we have a really large and wide diversity of those gut microbiome species. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I, I love, I love this field. I love the microbiome research. It's, it's, it's like, it's totally a booming field in the last 10, 20 years. It's absolutely exploded. And um, and just the realizations, just looking at the findings, the the thing, it's just mind blowing. All the all the stuff that they they've published and and what it means, even for us when we think of ourselves as humans. You know, first of all, we're not really human. Period. We're like we're super organisms made up of human material, but also other species, right? And even when you think of DNA, one percent of the genes we carry—that's the estimation. One percent of the genes we carry in our bodies as human. The other 99% are from all these critters in our, in our gut. So even when we think, oh, we can't change our genetics, it's not really true. First of all, you can, you can change epigenetically. You can change the manifestation of our, of our genetic code. But, but even the genetics itself that we carry, the genes themselves, we can totally, by, by manipulating the composition of our gut, of our gut microbiome, we, can to- we totally have an uh, influence over the, the total, the composite genetics, genetic material that we carry. And that has a direct effect on our physiology. So uh, we, I don't, we probably don't have time to go like on, on all the nerdy tangents that I love to go on. But, but like the microbiome has been implicated in almost every aspect of physiology and health from weight loss and weight maintenance and satiety to diabetes, insulin resistance, cancer, maybe even cardiovascular disease. So uh, it's just insane what these these uh, bugs can do and the interactions, the, the network of interactions between uh, the microorganisms and our body. It's a co- an ongoing crosstalk. Um, so there's plenty we don't know. It's an ongoing field, but the, the potential and the just the, the plethora of findings that have emerged in the last, really the last decade or two is just mind-blowing. So how do, how do we, to go back to your question, how do we take care of our microbiome? Uh, two main things. Number one, diet. I mean, these are the bugs that are in contact with everything you eat. Uh, the, 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 these species and the diversity, the diversity aspect, these species, they, they eat um, fiber. 
right? They are fiber eating. And so the variety of, of fiber, uh, we tend to think of fiber as one thing, but really there's thousands of types of fiber. It's not even, we don't even know of all the types of the different variety of fiber that, that exist. So a variety of unprocessed vegetables would be at the top of the list. That's what these, these bugs that have been implicated in health eat. And then they, they, they process the fiber and they metabolize it and they excrete what's called short-chain fatty acids. And so these compounds, things like propionate, butyrate, um, these things then interact with our gut wall and have this panoply of, of effects. So feeding our microbiome, number one, with a plant-rich diet, again, it works for everything else. It works for cardiovascular disease. It works for neurodegenerative disease, and it works for gut health. And then probiotics, um, there's more controversy there, especially the probiotics that come in, in pill form. but I've heard consistently from researchers that specialize in the microbiome that eating fermented foods, things like kimchi, sauerkraut, um, tempeh, you know, there's a, there's a, a number of those uh, that it's a good idea that it, that it tends to have beneficial effects. And they actually, these people tend to, to try to eat them daily and feed the, their kids these foods. Uh, so I've tried to incorporate those more after uh, hearing from, from that crowd. Uh, so those would be at the top. And then there are things, so those in, at the, um, regarding like protection and, and, and uh, stimulation of our microbiome, uh, but there, there are factors that also tend to, to be aggressive and uh, detrimental. Uh, taking a lot of antibiotics, especially if it's unnecessary, uh, that tends to have a detrimental effect on our microbiome. Um, yeah, there's a, a couple of other things, environmental as well. There, there are other things that are more speculative the over sterile environment that we now grow uh, grow up in and, and and raise our children in there's a whole theory that that might be a problem that that might diminish our our diversity our gut flora diversity uh, but I, I without a doubt i would put diet at the top at number one and i i think these the experts in this field would, would agree with that that's amazing especially how you liken microbiome these days to almost an epigenetic factor kind of commensurate to yeah. lifestyle factors such as exercise diet smoking drugs alcohol they it almost sounds like it's on par to all these other factors that we think of when we think of risks for cv diseases or cancers and things to that effect and really tell yeah. about the importance and the implications that the microbiome has and um expansion and research that can definitely be invested into that subject area. And in, in one, in some ways, the microbiome has more potential for intervention because the changes you can make there are very, very fast. You can change your microbiome in a matter of days, you know, 48 hours. There's some studies showing a dramatic shift in microbiome composition in like 48 hours with just with diet. Uh, whereas, you know, you change your diet and you and you look at cardiovascular consequences, it usually takes a couple of years to see something dramatic or something significant. But in terms of changing your microbiome and your gut health in general, that can be pretty fast. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Carvalho, for your, for your time. I feel like I learned in 40 minutes what have been 10 years of research. And to our viewers... Be sure to check out Dr. Carvalho's YouTube channel, Nutrition Made Simple, where you can learn a lot about nutrition. There's just so much to gain out of his videos, and uh, we appreciate him taking the time to educate the masses and to share 
this abundance of knowledge on the subject matter. And so thank you all for joining us. Thank you again, Dr. Carvalho, and this has been Medical Matters. Thanks a lot for having me, guys. It was a lot of fun.